0: You should have another handout for the chapter five on divine providence. I thought creation was going to be the easy one. We'll see if you have any questions after this one. Thought I was gonna get off, off the hook of light, but you guys did great. Good questions. Chapter five on divine providence. When we talk about divine providence, the Baptist Catechism talks about the ongoing work of God. How is the decree of God carried out? In his works of creation and providence, is what the Catechism says. Chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5 in the Confession should be read as a unit. A doctrine of God is incomplete without a doctrine of providence. And so, whereas Chapter Two lays the foundation on the essence of God and of and of this eternal God's relation to His creation and of His triune nature, the doctrine of His decree, which is an intra-trinitarian work, as eternal as God is eternal. So His acts of creation and of providence are an extra-trinitarian work. That which He does from Himself. Outside of himself Such that those works have no bearing on who God is in his essence And yet are the manifestation of his decree in time, space, and history So that's what we mean when we talk about providence It refers to the ongoing work of God subsequent to his creation So how is the decree of God played out in history Through his works of creation Chapter 4 and providence, chapter 5. Begin reading with me paragraph 1. And as we do, we're going to see a number of things, three main ways to divide this chapter. In paragraph 1, we're going to see the matter of divine providence. It's going to define the doctrine for us. And then in paragraphs 2 and 3, we're going to see the means of divine providence, both ordinary and extraordinary means. And then we're going to see in paragraphs four, five, six, and 7 an exploration of the mystery of divine providence. And the emphasis needs to rest there on the mystery of providence. And when we get there, we need to keep in mind the things that we've already discussed, for instance, about God's decree, about his will. Remember, we distinguished God's will in two parts last week. His decretive will, on the one hand, which is his will of decree, that is all of the knowledge that God has in himself about all that he's decreed concerning all possible worlds. Infinite possibilities. And then we have on the other side, not just a decretive will, but a prescriptive will. That is what God has revealed to us in his word. And... Though we cannot know everything that is true in God's decretive will, because God decrees all things in himself, and we cannot know God as God knows himself. We can know what he has revealed to us, such that we can know his will sufficiently, even if we can't know it fully. And so there are some things, when we talk about mystery, that we leave to God, because God is not just a bigger, better version of us, but because he's in an altogether different category from us. And we lean into those things which he has revealed, always interpreting those things which are more explicit, easier to understand, or rather, taking those things that are more explicit, easier to understand, and interpreting by them those things that are more difficult to understand. Drawing out necessary inferences from Scripture as as needed. Well, the doctrine of God's providence is going to be one of those. We're going to have to sit in mystery for just a few moments. Well, let's consider first, though, that first paragraph, the matter of divine providence. And we're going to see five things. We're going to see the author of providence, we're going to see its acts, its objects, its grounds, and its goal. God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least. By his most wise and holy providence, to the end, for which they were created, according unto his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. And so whereas chapter 4, creation, brings the world into existence, what we see now in chapter 5 is that providence sustains it, guides it, upholds it, And notice, first of all, who is the author of of providence? We see it as God, the good creator. The Westminster Confession reads right there, the great creator. But the Baptists change great creator to good creator. Not because they are denying the greatness of God. They've already affirmed that in chapter 2. But because they want, along with the doctrine of creation, to affirm that all of the acts of God's providence are good as God is good. And so notice that opening paragraph, it begins and ends with God's goodness. And that phrase, as you scan through the chapter, is going to appear again in paragraph four, again in paragraph five, and again in paragraph seven. And it's thumping the same message over and over that is every act of providence of God in this world is due ultimately to God's goodness. He is good. And what are the acts, then, of providence of this good God? It says here that he upholds and directs and disposes and governs. All of that is technical theological language. The, the writers aren't just saying, what are four adjectives or four verbs that we can throw in here, rather? What are four verbs that we can just throw together that just kind of that, that capture this essence? It was technical theological language of the day. It's the way that Protestant Reformed theologians formulated the doctrine of providence. And so the Baptists are saying, we're part of this same team of this glorious tradition, of this interpretive tradition that is tethering itself to the rest of Christian history and understanding God's acts in the world. Richard Mueller puts it this way, God preserves all things in being. That's what it means by upholds. He preserves all things in being. He supports their actions. He governs them according to his established order, and he directs them toward their ordained ends. And as you begin to read the post-Reformation Protestant theologians, you see this language used over and over and over and over again in summarizing the providence of God in Scripture. But what what are the objects? What's the scope or the objects of his providence? Notice it is to govern all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least. It extends to all things such that no thing from a leaf falling from a tree to soldiers falling in battle to stars imploding in the universe, there is not one thing in all of the universe that falls outside of the upholding, directing, disposing, and governing power of God's providence as creator, he upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all things. And he does so according to His infinite power and wisdom. And here we see the grounds of providence. His infinite power and wisdom. And in the free counsel of his own will. All of that should sound familiar because they're pulling language from chapter 2 on the doctrine of God. The counsel of his own free will from chapter 3 in the doctrine of God's decree. And so this is once again where we read the confession from left to right. Previous doctrines laying a foundation that we've already discussed to tease out their meaning in various ways in later doctrines. That is, that the creator-creature distinction that we see in chapter 2, and again in chapter 3, is absolutely fundamental. That providence is a necessary consequence of God's aseity. That is, what he is in and of himself, that he is self-existent. That's what the doctrine of aseity means. Such that he is not dependent in any way on anything that he has created in order to be God. His creation cannot act upon him or his knowledge or his will in any way that would change him. He would cease to be immutable. He would be a mutable changing God if that were the case. And so to confess that... He governs and upholds and disposes and directs all things according to infinite power, that is, power without measure, infinite wisdom, wisdom without measure, and according to the free, that is, uninformed counsel of his own will. According to all that he has decreed in himself, chapter 3. That according to all of that, God has then determined both the end and the means to the end of everything that He's created, and operates within those things that He's appointed by His decree, which we'll get to here in in paragraphs 2 and 3. In other words, when we say that that He upholds, disposes, directs and governs all things according to the infallible foreknowledge and free immutable counsel of his own will. We're saying that all things come to pass because God determined that they would do so in the exact way that they happened. You say, well, that sounds awfully deterministic to me. That's why we have paragraph two. But before we get there, just think, what we see taking place in and around us at any time is an historical expression of the decree of God carried out in providence. Why do all things happen? And why do things happen the way that they do? And even better than that, why? What is the purpose of those things happening the way that they do, especially those things which are hard or painful or evil? Well, it's because according to God's decree, God directs and governs all things. and He does so as the good creator and he does so ultimately for the goal of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. Which is to say that there are lots of times when we get into the doctrine of providence and we start asking, why does God allow? Why does God do? What possible good can come from this, that, or the other? That we're free, according to the scriptures, because of our understanding of God's decretive will, to say, I don't know. I don't know what God decrees in this. But here's what I do know, because this is what he has revealed to us. It's clear in what he's created, and it is clear in what he has revealed in his word, and it is clear abundantly and foremost in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And that is, whatever it is that he has decreed to come from this, it will magnify his wisdom, his power, his justice, his measureless goodness, and his mercy, such that our only response should be worship. So that's how they're beginning. They're setting the table for the doctrine of God's providence by saying that all that He does and all that He decrees as He carries out His decrees in creation, upholding, directing, disposing, and governing all things from the least to the greatest, all serve to magnify His glory. And so the goal of God's providence is God's glory. And our response to God's glory is always. Doxological, words of glory, doxelagos, doxology, it's worship. Paragraph two, we just considered the matter of divine providence, it's defined for us, but now we see the means of divine providence. That although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause All things come to pass immutably and infallibly, so that there is nothing or not anything that befalls any by chance or without his providence, yet by the same providence he ordered them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either freely or necessary, freely or contingently. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here because we touched on these things in our discussion on God's decree, and you can go back to that audio if you need to and listen to it again. We discussed the doctrine of concurrence there. That would be a helpful thing to reconsider. Uh, But just in order to understand exactly what we're saying here, because it's building, as you can see from the opening clause, on the doctrine of God's decree that we have first cause and we have secondary causes. The first cause that we notice is God, and as such, everything that he has decreed to come to pass is immutable, that is, it cannot change, and it is infallible, it cannot err. Why? Because God has decreed all things in himself, and God is immutable, and God is infallible. So therefore, God, is the first cause, brings all things to pass immutably and infallibly. He is the first cause. Cause. It cannot change and it cannot fail, and because God is self-existent, that is because He is a say, the creation can in no way change God or cause His decree to fail. And yet we see here that first clauses accompany second causes. Second causes are those events that appear to cause other events. And we affirm these things as true causes, that when Kathy and I, several years ago, were driving up Colorado Boulevard, is it Boulevard Street? I don't know. We're driving up Colorado, and we're right by Colorado Court's Apartments, which I don't even think are even called that anymore. Oh my goodness. Out there by Borders? You've been to Borders lately? (laughs) Is it Water's Edge now? Borders went away like 15 years ago. We're driving up, and this guy just goes right through that, that kind of 45-degree turn coming down Colorado toward that first light. Uh, and, and he came right through the turn and almost hit us. And we had to respond, and we drove off the road, and he drove off the road. And we would say, well, what caused you to drive off the road? And the answer is, that guy who was high as a kite made us draw or drive off the road. It was a true cause and yet, even in these true causes, these secondary causes, we can say in a meaningful sense that God, through this guy, high as a kite on Colorado, caused us, according to his infinite decree, to drive off the road, because nothing happens outside of his decree and providence. Now, why he had that happen, why it happened right then, why we lived instead of died, those things belong in God's decretive will. And yet we know what is true about God and his providence because of what he has revealed. And so these second causes are deployed by God, who is the first cause, for every other cause. And so, just for the sake of time, you might consider the story of Joseph, Genesis 50. Remember Genesis 50, verses 15 to 20. Oh, let's just go there. Genesis 50. Time is never wasted by diving in to the scriptures. Genesis 50. Here we are at the tail end of Joseph's life, and this dude has had bitter providence, and he has had sweet providence, hasn't he? That he was persecuted and beat up by his brothers, sold into slavery, potentially concubinage, was purchased out of slavery, then falsely accused of a sinful crime of wickedness that he didn't commit, upon the tail end of that false accusation was thrown into prison, but that it was there in prison. And by the way, when you read the narrative in Genesis, what you see is that the Lord was with him, is what it says playing in the background. The narrator just pops in every now and then and says the Lord was with him. So the Lord is with him, even in prison, when he has to speak to the king because the heirs of a cupbearer. And so now, because of his... Acts of truth-telling from prison gets promoted, ultimately exalted, to the second highest position in Egypt, which would ultimately end up serving to the preservation of God's covenant people according to his promise to Abraham, just as he said would happen. And so you have all these secondary causes of persecuting brothers and a lying wife of the husband he served in a certain cell at a certain prison with certain fellow inmates that got him access to the Pharaoh that would lead him to the second highest position in the nation to preserve God's people according to covenant. Listen to what he says, Genesis 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said... It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Isn't it interesting in verse 15 that they recognize what did they do? They did evil. Verse 16. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God your father. Joseph wept when he spoke to them? Why did he weep? Well, his brothers also came and, and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am, am I in the place of God. I like to think that perhaps verse 20 is the reason that Joseph wept. It wasn't merely that he saw his brothers. He had already seen them. It wasn't merely that he had spent time with his brothers. He had already been around them. He had saved them and Once before, he even brought them back to himself. He'd even heard good news from them, but now he breaks down in tears in the same way that I think you and I often grow emotional when we consider the goodness of God and his providence in our lives. Verse 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many should be kept alive as they are today, and then his response, do not fear, I'll provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So God the first cause is the cause for all other causes, secondary causes, which ultimately bring about other causes, which bring about all that he's decreed according to his covenant promises to Abraham concerning the preservation of a people, which would ultimately be the preservation of a seed that would lead to the salvation of the world. Isn't that amazing? That's incredible. That's what the confession means by first cause, secondary causes. And it says here that the nature of secondary causes is for these events to occur necessarily, freely, contingently. That is, they occur necessarily because the events are according to the nature of a thing. A thing acts in a certain way by necessity because that's the essence of a thing. Dogs bark and bite necessarily. Why? Because they're trees? No, because they're dogs. That's what dogs do. That's what it means by necessarily, unless you spend too much money on a designer dog. Then they neither bark nor bite or shed, which is pretty amazing. They occur necessarily because the events are according to the nature of the thing. They occur freely. That word freely guards moral agency, meaning that they're not automatons. They're not robots. They are freely doing all that they do such that they're able to say, like Joseph's brothers did, we did evil. We did that. And as a result, they're culpable for it, and they knew it. They do it freely and then finally, contingently, that word contingently, asserts that through certain events, even though they seem randomly caused, they are at the same time divinely planned. In other words, there are times where it doesn't seem like there's any cause for anything, though the first cause in his decree is always active. And so they're trying in paragraph two to establish... Against determinism, the freedom of creatures to act according to their own nature, and yet of God, the first cause, bringing all things to pass according to the nature of those second causes. Like I said, go back to our study last week on the decree of God. Consider the doctrine of of concurrence. Remember when we talked about Assyria and God? Assyria is God's rod. He used them, called them to destroy Israel, and yet the king of Assyria had set in his heart to destroy Israel and would be judged for the evil in his heart to destroy Israel by God, such that God felled him down like a stump? So which was it? Was it the king of Israel? Was it God? Yes. Go back to last week. You'll be edified by thinking about it some more. But paragraph three follows paragraph two on purpose in this way. It says, God in his ordinary providence makes use of means, yet is free to work without above and against them at his own pleasure. That word ordinary providence, or that phrase, it's linguistically connected to the word ordained. To say ordinary providence is to say ordained providence. And it's logically connected to paragraph 2. It speaks of the normal pattern of things according to God's decree in creation. It's things acting according to their nature. It's the ordinary way of things. And yet notice that we are not ultimately deists. God doesn't establish natural laws, spin it into motion, step back, and then just let everything happen deterministically. It says, yet he is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. See also the Red Sea. See also raising, a de- raising the Son of God from the dead. He is free to work without, above, and against the very nature of secondary causes like the deathness and finality of death to bring about life for all that are in Christ Jesus. And so God, even though he normally works according to his natural laws in creation, we see this everywhere. For example, you reap what you sow. Should you think that that's a normal way to function in this world? You should. God's created the world that way. We reap what we sow. He's also free to suspend the ordinary way of things. This is the theological justification ultimately for miracles. And so when you get into the Gospels and you see Christ performing miracles or anywhere else and In the Bible, for that matter, it's God working without, above, and against His ordinary providence, though these are necessary acts of providence, from His decree in order to bring all things to pass according to His will. God is not bound by natural laws. He creates them. But rather, natural laws are governed by God and he is free to do as he pleases. And this is also true spiritually, isn't it? You and I churches, our churches ideally, operate according to God's ordinary, ordained means of grace. It's to say that there are ordinary or ordained ways that sinners are saved and sanctified and then persevere in this life to the end. And that is primarily through the preaching of the word, through the right administration of the ordinances, through prayer, through the regular gathering of the saints who enjoy communion with one another, and many other things. These are the ordinary means of grace, and yet God is free to work beyond or above them. That's going to be especially important when we get to the chapter of effectual calling, and you say, well, how are elect infants redeemed by God? How are those... Who are mentally handicapped, and forgive me if that's not the appropriate phrase, but of those who are mentally incapable of hearing God's word, how are they effectually called into salvation in Christ? And the answer is given to us here. God is free to work above, He is free to work without and against them at His pleasure. Of course, always acknowledging that the means that he's provided for salvation is always in Christ and never apart from Christ, according to God's decree. And so, it's true not only of creation, but also spiritually. This doesn't excuse us from administering the ordinary means. We're still committed to them, and yet we don't presume upon God even if God is free to act otherwise. In other words, we give ourselves to his ordinary means, appointed by him in his word. God is free to act above and around them. We are not. Well, that leads us to the final section of the mystery of divine providence. And I'm going to read all the way through these last few paragraphs, and we'll wrap up our time. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that his determinate counsel extends itself even to the first fall and all other sinful actions, both of angels and men and that not by a bare permission, which he also most wisely and powerfully binds and otherwise orders and governs, in a manifold dispensation to his most holy ends, yet so, as the sinfulness of their acts proceeds only from the creatures and not from God, who, being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. Paragraph 5, yet the most wise, righteous, and gracious God does often leap Oftentimes, leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for other just and holy ends, so that whatever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment for his glory and their good, paragraph 6. But as for those wicked and ungodly men, whom God is the righteous judge for former sin does not blind and harden. From them he does not only withhold his grace, whereby they might have been enlightened in their understanding and wrought upon their hearts, but sometimes also withdraws the gifts which they had and exposes them to such objects as their corruption makes occasion of sin and withal gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world, and the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves under those means which God uses for the softening of others. Finally, paragraph seven, as the providence of God does in general reach to all creatures, so after a more special manner, it takes care of his church and disposes of all things to the good thereof. Go back up to paragraph four. Here we see the paragraph addressing the place of sin in the context of providence. How do we account for God's providence in the presence of sin? And even though it's a mystery, we account for it essentially in two ways. On the one hand, we account for it that because God's sovereignty extends to all things, we have to therefore include the first fall. That's what we see in the paragraph. But note, it says here that it's not by a, quote, bare permission, meaning that though God permits sin, he does so in a manner that fulfills his immutable decree. In other words, it never happens contrary to his decree. That's what we just saw with Joseph's brothers. R.C. Sproul puts it this way Yet the fact that evil exists in a universe governed by a perfectly holy God must mean that he has good purpose in mind. We see this in God's answer to the wickedness of Joseph's brothers. The brothers meant their deed for evil, and it was terribly evil. But God meant it for good, and he brought much good out of it. Now, the Puritan Thomas Watson summarized it this way. God permitted their sin, which he never would, if he could not, bring good out of it. In other words, his providence is infallible. It cannot err. Even when he's using the sinful actions of free creatures. And so God's sovereignty extends to all things, but yet even in another sense, even though God's sovereignty extends to all things, we see here that the sinfulness of men, of their acts, their actions, that it proceeds only from the creatures. And here the confession attempts to address the mystery of providence by stating two things side by side that are both true in Scripture, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of men. If you want to write down some passages to look at in your own time, Isaiah 10, 5 to 18. We saw last week, Acts 4, 27 to 28. We discussed some of the mystery of divine providence and the doctrine of concurrence, as I've already mentioned. But how do we reconcile this tension? How do we figure it out? And the answer is we don't. Like the confession, we confess what Scripture confesses, and we leave its resolution to God. Beloved, doctrinal error tends to always fail in this regard. That if we don't hold biblical tensions in place, interpreting things that are clear in Scripture with things that are unclear, of interpreting the whys with those revealed whos of the character of God, then we will inevitably deny or redefine either God's sovereignty through Molinism or open theism or some other error or heresy, Or we will deny and redefine man's responsibility through either determinism on the one hand or a hardcore libertarian free will on the other. Neither of them are in keeping with Scripture, and as such, we have to hold these things side by side just as we see them in Scripture and maintain that though the mystery of God's decree is partially revealed in them so that we might sufficiently do and believe all that God has called us to do and believe, We cannot know it fully as God knows it, and we leave it to him. And so that concerns providence and sin. But then we see in paragraph five, and paragraph six, we see providence in sinners, specifically concerning God's elect in paragraph five, and of God's enemies in paragraph six. And notice in paragraph five, the entry To the darkness of this paragraph, that is, leaving for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts, to chastise them. All language that you and I can relate to, that we need to think well about. That the entry to the darkness of this paragraph is a reminder of the wisdom and the righteousness and the grace of God. Why does God leave his beloved children to face, quote, manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts? The paragraph gives us three reasons. First, to chastise or to rebuke us. It's to rebuke us for our former sins or to reveal, that is, discover unto them how strong our sin is and how easily we are deceived by sin so that, quote, we might be Humbled, he rebukes us to humble us. Secondly, in this humbling, God raises us in, quote, a more close and constant dependence on him, that he weans us off of dependence on self, he weans us off of this world, and he brings us back to himself through Christ, and he uses bitter providence to do it. You and I, we love this world too much, and we love ourselves too much, And our love for self and our love for the world and our love for sin will bring us spiritual pain and the consequences of those things are death and in God's love as a good father rebukes us and chastises us so that we might be humbled and in our humbling depend more and more and more on him. Thirdly, notice it is to make us More watchful against all future occasions of sin. In other words, it equips us by enduring the deceptive and the destructive power of sin in our own lives, by enduring God's chastising discipline, which Hebrews chapter 13 says is unpleasant. It's not fun. We don't love it, at least not in the moment. It equips us to think better about sin that we might mortify it, put it to death, that we might pursue greater holiness, that holiness without which none shall see the Lord. God's discipline through bitter providence in our lives, chastising us, humbling us, making us more dependent on him, is a means of his providence to help us persevere by faith in Christ to the end, such that if God does not do this, then we are not his son. It is his love to us to produce in us a peaceful harvest of righteousness. That closing line, does it sound familiar? So that whatever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment for his glory and their good. That's Genesis 5020. It's Romans 828. And it just screams the providence of God through the scriptures. But then we have in paragraph six concerning God's enemies. And there's five things to say in the paragraph. First of all, who exactly are we talking about when we talk about God's enemies? That is, we're specifically talking about wicked and ungodly men. That is, those who perpetrate wickedness against God's law written on their hearts against God and against others. And those who openly and freely reject God and suppress his knowledge, though the knowledge of God has been revealed in all that he's created in all of his providence, and in his word revealed and fulfilled in Christ. He says, concerning these wicked and godly men, God is a judge. And even though, like believers, they have former sins, unlike those of us who are in Christ, they are not chastised or disciplined by God, but they're judged by God. It says here that they are blinded and hardened by God through judgment. And he hardens them in a number of ways. First of all, we see that he withholds from them grace. That is the very grace whereby they may be enlightened. and He takes it away from them. Secondly, notice it says here that he withdraws gifts from them. Gifts here should be understood as the gospel. And of all the benefits of the gospel that are associated with his people. In other words, he makes the gospel scarce among them. Thirdly, he gives them over to their lusts. Gives them over. It's the language of Romans 1. And then we see at the end of the paragraph, the result of all these things is that men harden themselves. Even as they sit under the gospel, and God uses that very gospel in other people's lives to save his elect, that very same gospel is the means whereby God hardens and sinners harden themselves. And the end is just condemnation. For their self-hardening. That's what we see throughout the scriptures, isn't it? This tension between, for instance, with Pharaoh that says twice in Exodus that God, God said, "I will harden Pharaoh's heart," and yet we also see that 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 Pharaoh hardened his heart toward God for secondary causes. We're commanded, for instance, in Ephesians, quoting Psalm ninety-five. Do not harden your hearts. And later on, it speaks of what this hard heart is. It is an evil and unbelieving heart. That's what a hard heart is. That's why when Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees and they reject his self proclamation, he he rebukes them for their hard hearts. They were unbelieving, evil hearts. Hearts that reject God's word, that reject his revelation in creation, providence, and in his special revelation in what he speaks. And they do so willfully, and they do so freely, and they do so according to the very means that God has has appointed. That is, they do so even under the testimony of creation to the glory and power of God. They do so even to the testimony of his power and wisdom and his providence, and they do so even and especially under the preaching of the gospel. Do you remember what what God says in his commissioning of Isaiah in Isaiah 6? He says, who's going to go? And He says, I'll go, Lord. His job as God's messenger is to speak God's message to God's hard-hearted people and there in Isaiah 6, he tells them that the means whereby he will harden them and through their hardness bring about his decreed purposes for the nation is going to be through Isaiah's preaching of the word. And the same is true today. That through the preaching of the gospel, God is simultaneously working in no less than two ways. That when brothers like, like our brother Joe goes out and preaches on street corners, faithfully from God's word, God's word is working in one of two ways. God's word will work to bring new hearts that respond to the gospel in repentance and faith, or God's means will work in such a way that it brings them into a further hardening and rejection of them, such that they would be justly condemned in their wickedness and ungodliness for rejecting his gospel. There are, no doubt, when we get to this point, you say, well, how is that just? You realize the wages of sinners' death. God is infinitely just (laughs) to save one sinner. Infinitely, without measure. Infinitely just. He owes us nothing. And our response to something like this should not be to accuse God, but should be rather to to say as we sing in, oh, I'm gonna look it up. Remember that hymn? Give me just a second. It's too good. It popped into my head. God the first cause gave it to me. He just needs to lead me to Google Chrome. How sweet and awful is the place. Listen to these lyrics. We sing this often as a church. This should be our response, both to God's providence in the lives of his people, but well as his providence against the wicked. How sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors. While everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? "'Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. So pity the nations, O our God, constrain the earth to come, send thy victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home, because we long to see thy churches full, that all the chosen race May with one voice and heart and soul sing thy redeeming grace. That's our response to the fearful providence of God in hardening the hearts of the wicked. Well, we take comfort finally in paragraph 7. You guys have done so well. The providence of God does in general reach that in a special manner it cares for his church. And it's using the language of Ephesians 3, verse 1, and I'm just going to conclude by reading it. Ephesians 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence, through our faith in him, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul says, don't lose heart. Why? Because according to the mystery hidden in God through the ages, that according to the eternal purpose of his plan that was realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, he does, after a more special manner, take care of his church. We're going to get home because of God's providence. Let's pray. Father, there are no doubt some in here who have suffered or may even be suffering now at the hands of bitter providence. And in their hearts resound questions of why and to what end. But I pray that you would comfort them from our study today of of being reminded, even if they can't answer those questions, Of the answer to from whom. That though we cannot always trace the purposes of your hands in our lives, we trust your heart. You have revealed yourself to be good and true and just and faithful. And as we are in Christ and members of your church, you will turn all things to good for us. You have to, because you're not like a man that you should lie. So guard us from trying to look into into your secret things, things which belong to you alone, to rest alone in those things which you have revealed to us, to content ourselves in it, even if it makes us look silly and foolish to the world. Oh God, this world is full of scoffers. Why would we want to align ourselves with the ungodly in this way, to fear them in any way we have seen their end And yet, I pray that in your great mercy, as we just saw that you would pity the nations and you would bid them come by the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. Perhaps you might even be kind to use our little church to that end in some way. And so we praise you, our God, our first cause, who has decreed and created all things and now, according to your providence, upholds and guides and sustains all things to their appointed end for our good and your glory. We praise you in the name of Christ. Amen.